Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. In Her Room is supported by listeners like you. Contribute to keeping the show ad-free at patreon.com slash inherroom, or visit our website to make a one-time donation. Your support keeps women's voices on the air. This week's guest on In Her Room is Kate Meissner. Whether she is creating original zines or teaching writing to incarcerated women, Kate Meissner is constantly pushing the boundaries of our own perceptions. Co-creator of the online course Digging Deep, Facing Self, and a founding editor of The Wide Shore. She is committed to safe and open spaces for a diversity of women's voices to be heard. Her own writing has won international acclaim, and her stories inspire and encourage others. Kate, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk about your work today, about um, your intensive online course, Digging Deep, Facing Self, your writing, your transformational justice work, and all of the other ways that you interact in the world. But to start off, I'd love to know, what is writing to you? Oh, that's a great question. It's so simple. And I think I pose it to my students all the time, but now that I'm faced with it, what is writing to me? Well, for me, writing is a number of things. First and foremost, when I think about it as an educator, I find that writing is a a healing tool. It's um, absolutely a place that we get to explore our deepest fantasies, our darkest shadow self, and also our greatest desires. Uh, As a writer, as a craft, for me, it's uh, one of the only things that stops time. It's something that really excites me the act of putting words together to create meaning, to make meaning, to tell stories, to really dive into life and explore life. For me, it's, I guess it's, um, it's not a way to answer the questions, but it's a way to ask more. And in that way, it helps me navigate and stay engaged with the parts of life that I find to be both joyful and tremendously difficult. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you are both a writer and an educator. And I, when I think of your work, I, I think of it as being so much more than just writing. You really are a multifaceted, uh, multimedia creator, uh, whether it is drawing or sketching or sharing words or sharing writing. There is this um, wholeness of experience that I think shows up in your work. And I'm curious how those things intersect for you, both the visual creativity as well as the written creativity? Well, thank you for that reflection, first of all. And it's interesting because I I actually, as a young person, was really interested in making zines. And as a child, Mm -hmm. I was was very interested in all forms of expression, uh, visual and written. And I had a really hard time deciding what path to pursue. So zines were this, you know, these photocopied magazines I created where I got to write and do the illustrations and, you know, experiment with wood block prints or whatever I was feeling and mash it all up together. And uh, I went to undergrad for graphic design uh, based on that, essentially. Grew kind of bored of graphic design and decided that I, my real, uh, my real drive was working with people. So that's where the education component comes in. And, and then I, I really abandoned visual art in favor of writing. And actually now I'm in in the process of finally getting my MFA officially Mm. in creative writing. So I'm just coming back to honoring the visual parts of myself. So the timing of your question is perfect. I've been taking a class that's asked me to draw again, and I've been loving it. And it's really uh, exciting me about the possibilities of where my creative uh, energy can go in the future and what can be made is it an art book with writing is it who knows a graphic novel which is very intimidating but who mm-hmm. knows mm-hmm. Uh, but what I realized too is that even though I haven't been drawing consistently for the last number of years that what you mentioned is something that a lot of people mention uh, that there's a visual and aesthetic infusion into everything that I do it's very much present in my work everything I do has a look so you know I I how do they intersect? They're just two parts of me that talk to each other. They're two things that I've been 
working on and developing and interested in. And for a long time, I thought I had to give one up to do the other. And sometimes I still fear that, you know, that I'll never be great at one thing because I'm just trying everything. But I think recently I've been trying to lean into the idea that it all comes from the same impulse and therefore it all has to come out in the way that it's asking to come out. Mm-hmm. I love that you mentioned zines. Um, we are of the same generation mm-hmm. and um as soon as you mentioned zines, I was like, oh, yeah. I can so clearly remember my own experience creating and putting together zines uh, by myself and with friends, not being a particularly visually expressive person, but focusing and thinking about putting that information out there and the importance of really allowing that space for creation and not focusing on it having to be a certain way or it had to be this really specific thing or even just particularly polished, right? Like Mm -hmm. you go to the library, right? You print off a bunch of pages when the librarian's not looking and then staple them all together. That's, you know, that was how we created our zines in the beginning because you used what you had. Absolutely. Well, it makes me very happy that you made zines and you know, we would have been friends as teenagers. But I think there, that there is something about that uh, physical aesthetic uh, that I wish was more present in the life of young people now. And I'm not an anti-internet person. I'm not anti-digital age or technology. I have my own Tumblr and social media and whatever. But I think something that we got to experience was... Uh, really taking ownership and empowering ourselves to be expressive. Now, now that's accessible to a lot of people through creating a blog, but the idea of the cut and paste, there's a different level of abandon and craft and not super worrying about your audience right away in a way that the internet has an immediate audience in a place that you could really get lost in physically. And I, 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 um, Mm -hmm. I miss that. I really miss that in my life. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And I think there is this way, you know, it's um, it's always interesting to me because we look at the way that books are transforming um, to take it a step further. You know, we, we have actual physical books. And then when you think about it, the way that um, books as physical objects are subject to the world in a way that books as digital objects are a little bit less. Um, I'm having a moment of just thinking about watching season three of Orange is the New Black, which I was just <laughs> watching. and I binge watched it. Yeah, so that's what we just did. <laughs> and the prison gets infested with bed bugs, and they burn the books in the library. And of course, I am sitting at the table crying over them burning these books and just all of the social and the political implications of this. And at the same time, thinking about how books are subject to something like bedbugs and fire in a way that something digital is not subject to those sort of forces of nature um, but have their own issues and, and weighing that like, oh, man, this really sucks that like digital books aren't going to be infested with bed bugs. But <laughs> how do we get digital books into places where people don't have access to technology in the same way that most people do, right? Most people can access a library or maybe have a smartphone or there are different ways. And so I was thinking about that as I was getting ready to talk with you today because a lot of the work that you do is in the justice system, in the prisons, and I'd love to hear about how you got started as a writer in residence uh, in prisons in New York State and what that has brought to your work, both as a creative and as an educator. Sure. Well, thank you for that question, and um, and I love that you brought Orange is the New Black in. That actually... Um, it's, I'm really not supposed to talk in depth about what happens in my work in prison, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break that rule a little bit here. And uh, so the way that I got started with that, um, 
is that uh, it was very organic and people ask me this all the time, how can I do it? And I'm like, you know, I, I really don't know on some level. Two organizations reached out to me at the same time. Uh, one, I knew the executive director for a number of years through education and work in New York City. And the other, uh, I had provided a reference for somebody else. And after an hour and a half conversation with that executive director, she then looked me up and emailed me and said, would you be interested in teaching for us? <laughs> and it was a good timing because I was leaving a full-time job. I was working at the time and I had the space to take it on and I'd done a little bit of work in the prisons um, through that previous job at Tribeca Film Institute where I worked in their education department as a manager and um, through doing some performances in prison in the past. So I knew I had an interest in the population and when I was actually a kid I remember being 14 and seeing a video called Books Through Bars, mm -hmm. excuse me, not Books Through Bars is an organization, it was called Books Not Bars and it was out of the Ella Baker Center I believe you can still watch it online for free, or now you can watch it on YouTube for free. I think I showed it to students a few years ago. And I was so moved by the issues that surrounded incarceration, the issues that we all know are just out of control in America. And for me, justice isn't, for, for me, justice is a really 360 degree process. You know, we need people in all kinds of roles. And I know that my role is person to person. That's where I thrive and that's where my impact always has been greatest. So while sometimes I wish that I could go out and do policy work, it's really a choice. If you're going to be on the inside, you can't do that work. You can, I mean, you actually legally really can't do both. Um, some people have made exceptions of that, but it's very tricky. So I said yes, and I walked in and uh, it's changed my life profoundly. Mm. And some days it's really the only work I ever want to do. Uh, I taught my second class of the semester with adult women um, last night. And how to describe it? Well, Orange is the New Black, there's a lot of critique of it. And those critiques aren't necessarily wrong, but the women that I work with all say, those who've seen it or read the book, say that it's pretty spot on. It's a, it feels like the most realistic representation of a women's prison there's ever been in our media, which mm -hmm. I really appreciate about it. And I also find that to be true when I watch it from my limited ex knowledge from mm -hmm. within my classroom, uh, which makes me feel better about loving it. <laughs> and what you say about books is so interesting because it, it, it is a space that's completely devoid of technology. Uh, you know, I lock my phone up before I go in. There's no internet, obviously, all of this stuff. And books become hyper important. And writing becomes hyper important. And expression becomes hyper important because it is not a free space. So, for example, women will tell me that they do not have real relations uh, relationships outside of our room. That actually being in gen pop means you, you might be friendly with people, but you really don't trust anyone. You can't. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very isolating experience. So then you have a book. A lot of people discover they even like to read in prison because it's an escape, A. B, it can feel like a friend. And, you know, if it's a novel, you can kind of experience vicariously some relationships. So in my classroom, we do rehabilitative-oriented creative writing, and it's incredibly emotional. We, we put a roll of tissue, uh, toilet paper, in the middle of the room. It's like our ritual. This semester, we're focusing more on craft, so we're, but, but there still has to be the room for the emotion because um, what writing does for you and I, Sarah, is what writing does for, obviously, mm -hmm. people in disparate situations all over the world. The difference between the classroom in prison and the classroom in public school, the classroom, wherever, the classroom in many other places I've taught, is the hyper-presence because there's no distractions, A, and B, more importantly, because there's a hunger to learn, to engage, to stimulate the mind, to get some of these emotions out, to be in connection with other people. There's, there's no place I've been that just is so alive in teaching. Mm. So that, I, I don't know if that answers your question. I think I just rambled on a little bit. No, it was great. It's totally because I think that touches on on something that is so important for us, particularly when we talk about women who are writing and women's stories is before Orange is the New Black, there really wasn't a narrative for an entire population of women. Right. And and to be able to do the work of um, 
really boots on the ground in the walls work of writing with women who are incarcerated gives the space and the potential for those stories to be heard even more. Well, that's what you hope. I mean, something I actually grapple with is that I, I, well, A, I can't talk about people's stories that happen in the room because ethically, obviously that would be unfair, but also legally I can't uh, share too much about what happens. And uh, people can submit from within prison, but it's hard to get those resources Mm -hmm. and I can't bring them in. I can direct them to it in the, the library, but there's not a ton of stuff happening there. So they can't. They they could pursue publication themselves, but uh, often that writing is really unpolished. I can't take it out and put it on my blog, for example. I can't mm-hmm. edit an anthology of their work for the world, and I really grapple with that because I hear stuff that tr- has changed my life. And for me as well, uh, what's really important about the space of teaching in prison is that um, humanity is very complex, and it and it. Uh, complicates my idea of right and wrong and good Mm. and bad. And people always say, well, what do you have? Mostly people who are drug offenders. And I'm like, well, not necessarily, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, I have, I have, and and will continue to work with people who've done, uh, violent offenses and violent crimes and things that are very hard to swallow. I've done a a little bit of work too, in some other men's prisons that are a little much shorter term. And I get you, it's an interesting space to be there and to know when somebody talks about their crime and to be able to hold space for them as, as a human in a way that you wouldn't for somebody you read in the newspaper. I find that all the time that I judge people who are criminals in the world, but mm-hmm. not in my classroom. Because there's something that happens there where you're confronted with somebody's humanity. If somebody's done something that you think is you know, pretty awful and, and heinous, but you still have to experience them or you still do experience them as a human with value. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean for humanity? What does that mean for myself as a human? What does that mean for our system and how could it change? And what does it look like? It opens up a can of worms, but a can of worms that I think that we need to be opening up in our society right now, especially when it feels like in America, everything is getting so regressive. It's, it's bizarre. So, uh, it's very confrontational in a way that I think is um, is really important, and it's not for it's not I don't think for everybody. And I'm honored that it's for me, if that makes sense. Mm, absolutely, to have the capacity to witness and to hold space, uh, I, I feel like it's a calling, mm. and it's, it can be challenging, but it's really it's really special as well. Absolutely, I'm. Wondering if you might be willing to read some of your work for us. Sure. Well, perfect timing. I actually pulled out a poem that is a poem I wrote for, for my adult students who are incarcerated, mm. uh, which they've heard. I read it at our last reading last semester. It's called Praise Poem. They thought everybody was going to start crying, but it's not that kind of a poem. <laughs> <laughs> so here's, here's how it goes. The circle's purpose is to see each other our unspoken rule, commit to looking. We were born and we will die, everything in between, filler, debatable. For example, we have hated a woman for snatching our man away like morning eggs. We stay awake at night counting constellations of guilt. We both feel menstrual today, don't talk to us. We call our mothers for comfort and if they answer, Tenuously measure the distance between truth and the length of rain. We read books to remember stories, not of our own making or mess, and thank God they are good, and thank God they are tragic. Tragically, we both wonder if we deserve anything good at all to feel beautiful or enjoy the pleasure of another body when we've screwed or screwed up. We dream of undisturbed sand covering each track and vanishing. But in this room, we crawl through the window inside, dig up from burial the dusty banjo of memory. We play on childhood's climbing tree, branches shedding crab apples snatched up by the deer. We can praise the fawn for cleaning the lawn with her hunger. We can name her prince in fresh mud. We can call her kin, coo the name we've crowned her when she shows her face in the damp morning grass. 
And though some of us didn't have backyards or a steady bed or a tree to love, we can write a porch into the seam or a birdhouse or untie a hurt until it stretches its arms out wide as the sea. We can invent this common history, waking up what is green and tender, lit deep inside our body's vast night. We can remember it has been proven that we are made of stars, always vibrating, sparking even, if it cannot be seen by the foolish eye and each era. There we are, there we were, unmistakably, a presence growing larger. Yes, we are spinning the giant revolving sky. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Your work has uh, stretched from uh, transformative education and, and uh, justice work to writing to also being uh, a founding editor of The Wide Shores, a, The Wide Shore, a global journal of women's poetry. And you also um, have studied with some incredible writers and teachers, including Yusuf Komunyaka. And That's I would right. love to hear about your experience specifically with the global stage of writing and particularly poetry and how that has influenced the way that you write and what you bring to the world through your poetry. That's a great layered, complex question. Mm -hmm. um, well, to give a little background, um, you mentioned Yusef Komanyaka, who um, is one of my all-time favorite poets. So I felt very lucky for that experience. I was 24 and I happened to uh, somehow magically win a scholarship or a contest called the One World Poetry Contest, which was connected to the first and sadly only Pan-African Literary Forum, mm. which happened in Ghana in 2008. I'm, I, sometimes I wonder how many people really submitted to it because it was <laughs> the contest for people of non-African descent. So, um, I had gone to see Yusef Reed actually with a bunch of other incredible poets and, and found out this information and, and applied. And I'd actually just gone through a, a pretty gut-wrenching breakup, the big, the big breakup of my life. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and pretty soon after that, found out I was going to Ghana, all expenses paid to this conference. So essentially the people who were at the conference were quite a few people from New York, but then otherwise, mostly people from the African diaspora, mostly from the African continent. So it was an experience where I, where I was hearing all kinds of different poetry, which had tremendously different voice. I mean, almost regional, uh, not to say that people just only sounded the same, but that there was definitely a, a massive cultural influence on, on everybody's writing, which was, uh, very awakening because we don't read poets from other cultures typically in the United States. I mean, aside from maybe, you know, like Neruda, um, who's the classic, classic foreign poet example. Mm -hmm. So that kind of influence was immeasurable to me to hear also about um, where poetry sits within, within other cultures. And it's, it's not only our culture where poetry has been deeply diminished. It's really worldwide. There's not a big stage for the arts uh, and we think that we have a bad in America, but there's a lot of countries in the world where the arts are really uh, outside of ritual or even tourism. They really don't, there's not a place to become an artist as a career, mm. unless you're maybe a crafts person. But there's, you know, there's a, there's a line between those um, in terms of, you know, expression, what we're talking about. Not to diminish crafts, craftsmen's work, because I think that's really incredible as well. So... That really opened me up to a whole new voice and verve. And I, I don't know how much it influenced my own writing, uh, except for the way that everything influences our writing, you know, in the world that we are lucky to encounter and be next to. Mm -hmm. And The Wide Shore came about, I mean, it's only about a year and a half old or so. We've done two issues. I'm really proud to say we've published some unbelievable women who are uh, incredibly revered in the in the canon, but also a lot of emerging women who are unbelievable as well. And it was the brainchild of Jan Laurie Goldman, who's one of my founding co-editors, who then brought in uh, Cheryl Boyce Taylor, who then brought in me. So the three of us started this together. And they're both women who are 
in their 50s and 60s. So they're like a generation older than I am, which is really special as well. And we have a, a t totally multicultural perspective, which is, which is great, you know. So there's a lot of diversity right in our internal space. And our, our idea was that, well, first of all, it was sort of shocking that there wasn't a poetry journal dedicated for women globally. It just didn't exist, which seemed unbelievable. So we were like, well, who better to do it than us? And we really intentionally have sought out uh, connections and for people to be sharing the work worldwide. The idea is about connecting voices, of course, and also giving space for people who maybe don't have the space. And I'm thinking about um, uh, the women poets in Afghanistan who uh, go through a tremendous amount of risk in order to write, especially if they're outside of the major cities. Uh, Elizabeth Griswold wrote a book about that. I am the beggar of the world. I believe it's called that is unbelievably gorgeous and moving and touching. And my husband's from uh, Zimbabwe where uh, I had set up a poetry reading when we went uh, two years ago that ended up not happening, but he was very clear. You cannot read poetry that is politically inclined. Mm. Uh, there really isn't freedom of speech there. Uh, currently we have friends staying with us from, um, from Borneo and same thing, lack of freedom of speech. It, it, we almost forget how critical expression is and how lucky we are for it. Uh, in the world, there's, there's many places in the world, a tremendous amount of places where you really cannot speak freely. And that is hard to even imagine for people in our realm. You know, For me, it's hard to imagine. Mm -hmm. So I think all of these experiences uh, are what ended up culminating in, in the wide shore and why I feel it's really... Uh, so important. And I often struggle with the hierarchy of need, you know, where does poetry fit on the scale of what people need to survive? And while I question it, and sometimes can beat myself up for not being in situations where it's where it's more basic survival, where I'm contributing to that space, I, I always ultimately come back to the same answer, which is that expression is critical to survival. Um, in a different way, it's critical to the survival of our heart. Mm. So that, yeah, so that, that culminated and encapsulated all of those experiences into a place that we're, we're still steadily growing. By the way, always check for submission calls. We, we, uh, we call for submissions about twice a year. So if you're mm -hmm. a woman writer, <laughs> submit to us. <laughs> we want you. I also, I would love to hear about the time that you spent in Malaysia. Sure. I'm interested in what that tour meant for you and how you worked with the people that you met in Malaysia. Sure. Well, the, the tour came about also in a way that was really organic. I have a, um, I mean, I'd love to travel, absolutely. And I believe people should travel if they have the means to, just in terms of what it does to expand our own understanding of humanity, essentially. But I don't really have the means to travel on my own for vacations or whatnot, you know, all that often, if really at all. So when I travel, it's typically because I'm invited into a community. And if I'm going to work and set up a tour, I, it has to be because I've been invited into a community. I'm not comfortable going and, and infiltrating, so to speak. So luckily and magically and beautifully, um, I, I had a woman who was a student in my online course, Digging Deep, Facing Self, which you mentioned earlier. Sometimes we also refer to it as Grow Fierce, sort of interchangeable. And she had taken one of the earlier rounds, and she's, she's from Australia but is Malay in her origin uh, and, and recently moved there, back there, as an adult. So she loved the course. Then she worked with me individually one-on-one, -on -one, and she said, i, I got to get you to work with, uh, with our community, communities of women here. And she set up a connection with a couple local community groups that bring artists over from other countries. And they hooked into the U.S. Embassy. And, I mean, amazingly, it all came together. So it was a 12-day tour of three cities, which was completely exhausting. If you've ever toured for any U.S. Embassy, you will know that they have you working yourself to the bone. They squeeze you. Uh, so you're, you're exhausted <laughs> and I get sick twice. But I was extremely happy. And I was doing a combination of readings and workshops with local poetry groups, with public and private schools, uh, with after-school programs, so some stuff with the youth, 
uh, and some stuff that was just open to the community. So it was this, uh, a real banquet of different kinds of orientations and engagements. And I was using modules from the online course I teach, uh, pulled out of context. And we didn't just teach women. We opened it to men as well. And I, you know, I had, I, I was curious how I'd be received because Malaysia is a primarily Muslim country and the, and the audiences I was interacting with and engaging with were primarily Muslim in orientation. Uh, and I had been told, you know, by this, by this uh, young woman, you know, you might want to wear clothes that really cover up your extremities. And if you know me, I have t two full arm tattoos and three nose rings and I don't, I don't, uh, you know, obviously cover my hair because I'm not a Muslim, though I have respect for the community. And so I, I didn't know what to expect, but I was, uh, I was so welcomed. I mean, I found that when I traveled in general, it's, uh, it's really, it's a really warm community and a warm country. And what I found was that um, the things that I had imagined, which is that there are universal concepts. We were looking at um, ways to love ourselves more. We were looking at gratitude. We were looking at uh, our ancestral narratives. And all of these prompts that were created from an American brain in an American city really are expansive enough to include people from all different contexts, which was, uh, you know, for me as a creator, really wonderful and exciting. But also one of the most special moments uh, around it was when the group recognized that for themselves. So we were in Penang and we had a group of, uh, of one, one person from Thailand, uh, per, two people from India, one from Bangladesh, a couple Malay, uh, American expat, black American, uh, somebody from Nigeria. So there was this real s uh, spread of ethnicities and people who didn't grow up in Malaysia necessarily and some who did, but maybe were first generation uh, in Malaysia. And we did the connecting uh, or looking at our global, excuse me, there's another prompt that's uh, connecting personal and global loss, but that's not what we did. We did mm. uh, our ancestral narrative pieces. And what we found were, first of all, we, we would share at different stages of the writing. So there were funny stories that would come up of people's family and background and many immigration stories. And there were so many similarities. The characters were different and the cultural references were different, but the stories were actually so similar. And people were laughing and relating mm. across cultures and the pains were also shared and similar. So the joys and the pains really mirrored each other. So that was a really a beautiful revelation for us all to have. And for me, uh, that's where poetry takes on something and writing takes on something that's beyond expression when you're in a group setting because the connection and the mirroring of seeing our own experience and others that are very different from us or we think are very different or grown up across the world or within different cultures you know, can you imagine if the whole world could tap into that? I mean, we desperately need it. So that was, that was one of the most special moments for me on that tour as well. Mm. But, you know, oh, I made some great lifelong friends that I dearly miss. I'd love to hear the best advice you've ever received. You know, I, <laughs> I've received so much good advice in my life that I, uh, I, I don't know if this is the best. I think that sometimes there was... Those labels make me nervous. I'm like, what, which <laughs> one is the best? Uh, you know, and I've, I've been really blessed to have really fantastic parents and friends and mentors. So there's a lot in my brain. But what popped into my mind first was a recent piece of advice that one of my best friends shared with me. Um, and it was from the Tao Te Ching. And it, she shared it with me when I was going through a, a bit of a depression, feeling really low. It was the middle of winter. I was feeling really burnt out, really stretched thin, uh, too open. You know, my energy had been too open and I needed to really close it and go more internally. And I was tired. And she said, you know, uh, here's the quote, you know, be really whole and all things will come to you. And for me, it was such a simple piece of ancient wisdom but for me, it was exactly what I needed to hear because I'm used to being a driver. You know, I have kind of an aggressive work energy. I, I'm on it. <laughs> I'm balancing the world as I know you are too, Sarah, and, and many people listening probably mm -hmm. are as well. And I take life by the horns and I go for it. And I'm compartmentalizing these different identities when I step out of one classroom and into the other. 
and on some level, you know, constructing an identity for the world through all that, that is external. And there's pieces of me in it, but it's not all of me. And what I needed to do was really reconnect with myself in a very quiet way. And I, I have been allowing myself that space for the last number of months. And that is the mantra that I return to when I'm afraid that if I give myself that space to read a novel or take a nap or take a walk or do yoga or meditate, all of those things that I push aside in, in, in the name of work, that if I do those things, actually everything else I do elevates. It's, we know it, but it feels counterintuitive in the moment. Mm -hmm. So that, that was very permissive for me. So best piece of advice, I don't know, but a best piece of advice for me in the last few months. I want to talk about grow fears. All right. And um, also known as Digging Deep Facing Self, um, which is a 30-day online course that you teach. And I'd love to hear how you came about that course and a little bit about uh, what the course is and who it might be for. Okay, great. Well, um, the course came about, I've told the story a million times, because um, I had hired a coach at one point to work with a business coach. I said, I, I know I have contributions. I know what I'm good at. I just don't know what it means. And she said, well, have you ever thought about doing an online course? Um, around writing and for women who seem to be your audience primarily who's drawn to you and I said oh I haven't thought about it so we, we talked about that a little and what she did that I thought was brilliant that I have recommended to many people since is uh, she asked me to go through emails from strangers that I've received and people who had sent me private messages on my blog that were strangers and they were primarily women as she was as she's uh, pointed out and then she went through all of them in the document and she highlighted uh, what people were really saying, the heart of it. And what it came down to is people were uh, asking me or praising me for my ability to be vulnerable and brave and fierce, whatever those three things mean, because I don't always feel those way, <laughs> those things in the world, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. but if people interpret you that way, you must be doing something right that puts that out there. So she said, have you ever thought about teaching people how to do that through writing? And I thought it was a great idea, not because I'm some guru who knows how to do these things innately and I have some incredible wisdom to impart, but because I've taught long enough to know how to create processes that draw people out of themselves. And I think that's really what it comes down to. You know, your boldest self is, is the tagline is a 30 day intensive online course designed to uplift, heal and transform women into their boldest selves. And for me, the boldest self doesn't look like the way that I exist in the world. It means becoming, you know, really grounded in who you are and drawing that out of yourself, which for me meant facing some really difficult parts of our lives and the things that we hold and bury into our memory and push down, bringing that up and facing it. Also looking at the way that our histories connect with other people's histories, as we talked about just now, and also looking at how we celebrate ourselves, which is not something that women feel very comfortable with, I've come to find out, and feel it myself often. So I took about six months to create this 30-day course where there's um, three days of intensive writing steps, five-step writing prompts, um, uh, a day of editing, deep editing, a day of reflection, and a day of putting yourself in the world. It's called an action step. And then on Mondays, there's also a, like a kind of a lecture from me that's recorded and uh, usually an article to read. And then we do a weekly group call where I'm going to give a lecture and we open up the end of it to, for participants to talk and share. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was about two or so years ago. We've run seven rounds. We're in our seventh round right now. I don't know how long the experience will continue, truthfully. You know, it's definitely not the last um, leg of my journey as a creator and an educator. But right now we're, mm -hmm. we feel really good about it. And, you know, it's not for everybody for sure. But we find that the majority of people who take the course and actually stick with it because it is very intensive, it's at least 20 minutes of work a day, every day for 30 days mm -hmm. in a row. And plus you're also interacting right. with, with your writing group. Uh, we find that it, it really does make a difference and change. And that's the feedback we've gotten, which still always delights me and blows me away. <laughs> So who's it for? I mean, typically we have people, I'd say the median ages are between 24 and 35. That's the bulk of our women. Um, we have had as young as 18. We've had as old as 60. So, you know, that's 
quite wonderful. And our women are from, I mean, literally all over the world. We have, I am very proud of the fact that we have one of the most diverse experiences that I've ever seen or participated in or been a part of. We have, just, I mean, we just have a, a spectrum of women uh, from an incredible amount of uh, ethnicities, places in the world, uh, gender orientations, sexual orientations, uh, we've had a number of trans women. We've had some uh, gender queer women, although our space is very gendered, so that can be difficult. Um, so who is it for? I mean, it's it's for women who want to shake something up in their lives, who want to be honest and facing things that they've ran away from, who are ready to open up and and uh, and go there. So it's really for everybody. I, I find that a lot of the women that are drawn to the course are already kind of politicized or existing in a social justice realm. You certainly don't have to be. That just seems to be who's attracted to my work. So it ends up being very heavy on that end. Mm. And I think also one of the things that I love about the way that uh, you talk about the course and the way that the course is talked about on its site is that really it is it comes through the lens of writing but you need not be a writer or um, published in any way to take oh, the course. Yeah. That, that really writing is the tool. And I think that's so important to remember because no matter how we approach it, whether it's um, we find a course that we want to take online or we pick up a book like The Artist's Way or Writing Down the Bones or we listen to a podcast, what matters is that if we feel the call, that we answer it and that we write. And I think I get this sense that, like myself, writing for you has been both that creative force and also that way to really understand the world. Oh, absolutely. And I'm so glad you mentioned that. I call it difference between being a capital W writer, somebody who wants the identity of being a writer in the world, and somebody who says, you know, maybe maybe journaling is the right process for me. Some people really discover they can write, which is very exciting too in the course. It's for both people. Mm -hmm. And there and people take it for different reasons. And you know, there's there's a, a space that we try to create of non-judgment. Of course, that's not, you know, we're still in the world. <laughs> so of course that's uh, you know, we we judge naturally. Uh, but yeah, it absolutely is both for me. I'm um, an incredible journaler and work things out and write horrible things that don't, you know, would never be published or make any sense. And then there's the part of me that wants to be the capital W writer and writes things that I want to communicate with other people. And I want to make a beautiful poem and I, I get excited about the crafting of that and the shaping of that. Uh, but I definitely have the two sides of how writing works in my life for sure. Yeah, you nailed it. Well, Kate, it's been so fabulous talking with you. I feel like I could just sit and talk with you for hours. Oh, thank you. Vice versa. Yeah. I'd love to give you a chance to share some of your wisdom with the greater listening audience directly, because I think there's just so much that you have to share and offer that is such an honor and a gift for me to bring into this space. All right. Well, th well, thank you for that, first of all. Uh, so people who are listening, I'm going to talk to you, which I love to do. The first thing I'm going to say is um, there's no right way to do this. Often in my course, women will ask me, uh, how do you write? What's your daily writing practice like? And, uh, and I understand that question because we do get curious about other artists' habits and what do and would that work for me? It's very valuable to do some of that discovery. There's a great book called, I think, The Habits of Artists, Artists Habit, that's really fantastic for diving into those kind of stories. Um, but for me, I don't write every day. I often write, and often it's a journal entry that I was just talking about, something really crappy. And sometimes my writing looks like editing, and sometimes my expression takes a totally different form, and sometimes I read instead, and sometimes I don't do shit because I don't want to. I think that there's a dangerous idea on either end of the spectrum about being a writer. The one end of the spectrum is, if I don't do it the right way every day, if I don't immerse myself in it, I'm not gonna be any good, I am no good. Now, 
on the other end of the spectrum, there's the idea of things will just come to me magically. I don't really have to work at it. Writing, I can only write when inspiration strikes. And that's a detrimental space to be in as well, because what, what is this concept of the muse? You cultivate the muse by being engaged in life, by being engaged in your own creative spirit, your own creative energy, your own creative practice. So for me, the conversation with writers and with people who want to write is about finding what works for you and experimenting. So there's a, there's a poet like Ocean Vuong, for example, who's a, a wonderful human and an incredible poet. And he writes like two poems a year. And he has like two books out and a book deal coming. I don't know how he, how he must've been writing for years and he's very young. <laughs> but I just saw on Tumblr today, he posted, I wrote my first poem of the year. <laughs> <laughs> that's why he does it and he's revered he just got a poem published in the new yorker you know like the golden the golden uh <laughs> standard right of publications and on the other end um there are writers who need to write every day because otherwise they're not going to write they don't exist outside of a of a structure of a daily structure and i think both of those orientations are right because the work is happening and just because ocean's not writing uh, doesn't mean he's not thinking about writing all the time. It doesn't mean he's not reading. It doesn't mean he's not editing. So the work of writing is tremendously important to be engaged, to be doing it, not to wait for this elusive muse to come and descend into your body like a ghost and speak through you. And then also beating yourself up and getting stuck in the, oh my God, I didn't write today. Well, now I can't do anything. It's, you know, it's almost like exercise, you know, which I'm terrible at exercising. So it's maybe a bad metaphor for me to use, but uh, you know, your, your muscles work when you work them. But if you skip a day, it's not productive to beat yourself up. You just get up and go tomorrow. So find your method and also imitate a hell of a lot of people. You're not going to find your voice right away. And that's fine. Write like people you love. Write like people you hate. Try on different methods of uh, expressing a poem. And the more you write, the more you're going to start to lean into what your own voice is. And if I could recommend a book to you all that actually I'm using to teach right now. I'm basing my semester off this. And also just a fantastic, easy beautiful book to read is called the poetry handbook by mary oliver who is a obviously incredibly famous poet and wonderful poet and i think you'll get a lot out of that you know and and please also um, find people who encourage you there's so much competition and envy in artistic spheres and i feel it too i'm not immune to it i'm not exempt from it but if you don't have a handful of people around you who you feel like their win is your win and they feel like your win is their win. It can be a very toxic world to live in. So yeah, find your allies, find your comrades, find the people who, when they do something great, it makes you feel great for being next to them. So this poem is a little bit uh, for everybody listening, a call to action, even though it's a poem directed at myself about myself. It's called Why I Am Not a Photographer, AKA Why I Choose to Be a Poet. And actually this poem was written for the incarcerated women in California who are being sterilized or were being sterilized to cut welfare costs at the time, but it's not necessarily totally about them. You'll see, okay, here we go. It kind of encapsulates everything we talked about today. That's why I wanna read it. In the newspaper photograph, the women's star-fished fingers mask their faces from camera, shrinking into cotton candy-colored jumpsuits as if trying to crawl back into a shell and float away. I turn away, too, from their private swatches of exposed skin, guilty for my eyes on their elbows. I pluck them from my head to cool water, but still cannot quell this desire floating upward in the glass. It rises in me stronger without sight, a desperation to feel their cheeks against mine. I want to squeeze their hands as they wait for their turn on the cold table to bring a blanket or ball dress and take the medical gown onto my body, breasts so close to theirs under thin paper. Yes, bring me to breath. It is how I have always been. 
In the river, I must put down my hand, the wet reeds unmoving. I wade still for tiny fish to bite at my toes. I want to feel rough skin ripened by tomato and sun. I want to loosen a child's tooth to palm, smell the whiskey stink of a beggar's stumbling song or the drag queen's tickling wig. Let the fire victim rub his knotted stub against my waist. Drop the skinned mango to my ready lap, blood-warmed kittens squinting towards their mother's first milk. I cannot watch a fire burn down without adding my own spit to its demise. Dismantle the lens's safe shield coming up between us and unleash my hands from their brutal muzzle. I want to put the wound to my pulsing lips. Bring the mammal so close. I cannot find the end of myself. Bring the women so near. I lose use for my own name. Thank you. Kate, it's just been so fantastic to talk with you today. Thank you so much for saying yes. Thank you, Sarah. You just keep saying thank you. And you know, it's mutually beneficial. So I think we're both feeling pretty good right now. If if listeners want to learn more about you and your work, they can find you at katesmeissner.com. And also they can learn about your 30-day course at growfierce.com. And I'm going to tack one URL on the end of all this, which is the wideshore.org, if you're interested in the Women's Global Poetry Journal. Uh, There's a lot of URLs, and you can get to all of it from my website, luckily. Thank you so much for being here. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with essayist, crime novelist, and university professor Joy Castro. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.